two major procurements from the General Services Administration face protests. The Air Force and possibly the Homeland Security Department will be spending a lot of time with the Government Accountability Office this fall, also over protests. In his weekly feature, The Reporter's Notebook, Executive Editor Jason Miller writes about why federal procurement lawyers call this time of year the protest silly season. Jason joins me now. And Jason, it is shaping up to be a silly protest season. Let's start with the GSA. They seem to be garnering some of the most visible ones. They do most of the procurements in government, it seems like, especially the big ones that go you know, government-wide, government-wide acquisition-type contracts, multiple award contracts. And the one that stands out to me that really just said, oh, that, that kind of rang the bell that this is the silly season is actually their e-commerce platform solicitation. Now, Tom, if you remember, GSA has been working on this solicitation for the better part of a year and a half, almost two years. They finally released the solicitation in October. And once you know it, the company that is leading, that many expect to, to win this contract, Amazon, filed an agency-level protest. Now, this is different than filing a GAO or a Court of Federal Claims protest. This is kind of like under-the-radar type of protest, like, telling the agency hey we're not really excited about what you did can you let's work together uh, kind of underneath the covers uh, before we go to the big you know, gao type of protest so that that's actually very significant that they decided hey we we don't like what we see you know even though industry gsa you know congress has been involved for the last you know 18 months on on this uh, developing this solicitation but isn't it a little surprising because in taking the time to develop the solicitation, doesn't GSA, don't the agencies talk with the would-be vendors in the first place? Absolutely. And that's why you know government sources told me that Amazon had challenged GSA's market research. Was it sufficient enough? And that's a really big head-scratcher for me because GSA spent a year and a half doing market research. So how much more could they have done? I'm also told that Amazon challenged the fact that the, the compliance issues like the Competition and Contracting Act – the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act, and even the provision in the 2018 Defense Authorization Bill that required GSA to set up this e-commerce marketplace in the first place, Amazon was unhappy about. Now, I've been told that, that the protest has been dismissed at the agency level, and GSA is taking corrective action. What that corrective action is, we're unclear. And where this goes from here, because bids were due on this back on November 15th, and I have not seen any notice or update on the on, on the procurement websites that says that the time has been extended to submit new bids. However, there was a big Wall Street Journal article, Tom, you may have seen this uh, at the very end of November, that did talk about Amazon, Walmart, and eBay all looking to submit bids for this e-marketplace platform and, and take part in it. I did reach out to Amazon. They did not. They declined to comment, refer to all all uh, questions back to GSA. Uh, however, I did talk to Roger Waldron, who is the president of the Coalition for Government Procurement, and has been very uh, outspoken about this e-commerce uh, protest, uh, not just protest, but this e-commerce program. And he said, listen, he believes that, that the fact that Amazon submitted a pre-award agency-level protest is quite significant. He tells me that the, the extent that the fact that the RFP terms are inconsistent with commercial practices, that is, is very concerning to him and others in the community. The fact that Amazon highlighted this also talks about whether or not GSA is on the right path or not. At the same time, he also says, listen, this is why transparency is so important. The public needs to understand the nature of the RFP and whether it's consistent with the law. So it would be interesting to see what the corrective action GSA does eventually take if we, if we ever do find out.
We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller, and the GSA is not alone. The Air Force and we think possibly Homeland Security also have big contracts, which vendors are not happy about. Absolutely. Now, the let me start with the Air Force one. This is one that we've uh, been reporting on for a little while. This is a big $728 million uh, program for, for the common cloud environment by the Air Force. Uh, SAIC won this pro- program earlier this fall. Lidos submitted a complaint. So th- that's a big contract for a very important program within the Air Force. I mean, everything that the Air Force does, maybe not everything, but mo- many things that the Air Force does around cloud is going through this common cloud environment. And then, Tom, you know, late last week I got a little bit of a tip that, that DHS's financial management systems, RFPs, now again, these are not awards yet, these are just solicitations. My understanding is from industry sources that Savantage is actually considering or has filed a complaint. Now, GS, GAO doesn't show any protests on its docket, and I did email Savantage and they, they had not returned my email. But this wouldn't be surprising. Savantage actually expressed concerns over DHS's plans to upgrade the financial systems many times over the last decade. They filed a protest in 2010, if you remember an RFP called TASC, that actually didn't go so well. They also filed another complaint in 2016 in federal court over the agency's decision to move its financial management systems to the Interior Department Shared Service Center, which, again, that didn't go well either. So, so I'm not. I wouldn't be surprised if they did protest. I'm still waiting to see if if anything comes up in GAO or the Court of Federal Claims, or again if Savantage uh, replies to my email. But this just shows you how what's going on in in the community that all these big RFPs are coming out, and now as protest lawyers tell me, hey, we're busier than ever. Uh, and, and we always expect to be busy in the first quarter of any fiscal year. That's the question. Is this first quarter fiscal any worse than previous ones? Is there something in the air that's making protesting more active now? It's one of those things that's always hard to tell until after the fact. Uh, I talked to Eric Crucius, who's a partner over at Holland and & Knight, and, and somebody who's you know deep into the procurement world, and he tells me it doesn't seem any busier, but, but as a procurement lawyer, they know that time and again – that this early part of the year is is quite busy. He says the biggest difference he's seen these days and maybe in the last maybe couple years is you always would hear about contractors being afraid to sue their customer and agencies unhappy when they were sued by their customer. That seems to have been lifted and, and both sides kind of see this, uh, this idea of, well, this is part of the, the process. It doesn't mean we don't like each other. It doesn't mean we have to get a divorce. It just means, hey, we're going to have this disagreement and we have to kind of come to some sort of middle ground to, to work forward. So he said that's probably the biggest thing that he uh, has said is difference in the last year or so than in previous year. Well, like friends of ours say, it's just business. And Jason, you're also writing about some new procurement rules from the Small Business Administration that have been pending since, uh, what, 2015? Yes, Tom, even since 2015, some since 2016 and the 2017 defense authorization bills. These are rules that really small business contractors, small business lawyers have been waiting for for years and years and years. And if you remember Back in November of 2018, Larry Allen and I, you you may have heard of him. He's been on your show once or twice. Well, we're going to hear from him later this hour on some things also of concern, but yes. (laughs) We sat down and we had a good time and and did some, if you will, uh, procurement betting. We put some odds on whether certain rules would come out over the next year or not. And it's good to see that SBA beat the odds. They, they at least got their rules out the door. And, And while there's a lot to talk about, let me just highlight two of them that I think are most significant. The first one, Tom, is around the average annual receipts that, that small businesses use to decide whether or not they're 
will continue to be considered a small business. Because remember, in the government speak, you're either a small business or you're not. There's no medium, there's no large, it's, it's, it's small business or not. Previously, SBA has used a, a receipt based on three years, so how much money you brought in over three years. And if you brought in too much money, you got out of the small business consideration and you are now considered other than small. What SBA has done is change that calculation to average five years of receipts. Now, this will take effect January 6th, and this is a big deal because it gives it gives a kind of a longer runway, if you will, for small businesses to stay in the program. Yeah, if you had no revenue in the first couple of years while you're getting started and waiting for that first contract, that's really a big advantage. Correct, and all of a sudden you got that first big contract and it was a $50 million contract, and all of a sudden you could could get out of small business world very quickly. That's tough on, on any one business, and it also hurts the industrial base. The good thing about this rule that I think SBA puts a lot of thought into was not, not only did they extend it to five years, but they gave a two-year kind of implementation phase where small businesses can decide what makes the most sense. Do I jump into that five-year recertification, or do I wait till 2022 and then begin the five-year recertification and stick with the three-year recertification previously? So I think they were very thoughtful about it, and I think this is something that a lot of small businesses have been waiting for. The second rule, real quick, Tom, is around hub zones. This is a program that launched in 1997. I remember covering it when it launched. There was a lot of hope for it, and it never really panned out. It's this idea of bringing jobs and businesses to what they call historically underutilized business zones. So areas of whether it's cities or counties or rural areas that don't have a lot of um, um, economic development, and it's a way to spur economic development. And it's not race-based, and it's not socioeconomic-based. It's really based on the census tract. Well, this program was very difficult. Uh, it required recertification for every contract. And what SBA did with their final rule is is really relieve some of the burden on vendors to be hub zone. So once you're hub zone uh, certified in 2020, you're good till 2021. You don't have to recertify every year with this new rule. And, and that's a huge change. They also dealt with some issues of, for instance, under HubZone, you have to have at least 35% of all your employees living in the HubZone. And if you fell below that 35%, then again, you are no longer eligible for HubZone contracts. They've also dealt with that issue that if you have 35% of your employees, when you certify, you the next time you certify, you have to have 35% again. So again, you have a year to win all the contracts you can and you bring economic development to that to that part of the uh, area that your your business is in. These are just two major changes. There's a whole litany of others that are out there, Tom. But uh, it's good to see SBA beat the odds, if you will. Yeah, some rationality to a program that has been controversial. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.